Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 will be in verses 1 through 7 this morning. I'd like to thank Jake for preaching the word last week, uh, an encouraging time to meditate on God's call for us to make disciples. This morning we'll be back in Galatians uh, in this fourth chapter as we look at adoption, God's adoption of us through Jesus Christ. And as we look at this text together, we'll see this central truth that because we are children of God by faith, we are secure in the love of God our Father. And the way this works is we place our faith in Jesus the Son. God sends his spirit to our hearts to witness to us that he is our Father. Let's read together now Galatians 4 verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive as adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So just a brief reminder of the flow of Paul's argument here. In chapters 3 and 4, he's moving from bondage to freedom. So in chapter 3, he particularly addresses the idea of bondage to the law. So before Christ, we're under the law, but as we have faith in the promises of God, we move toward freedom. Well, here in chapter 4, he picks up on that same idea, and he kind of adds to it. Apart from Christ, we're in bondage, like underage children who have no rights. But in Christ, we move toward all the fullness of blessing of being heirs of the kingdom of God itself. Well, there are a couple of remarkable things going on here uh, in this text, but also just in the life of my family that intersect pretty crazily this morning as we jump into this text together. So I'm going to beg a little personal license this morning and, and walk through a number of things. Uh, so many of you know that for a number of months now, we've been uh, praying about our family adopting a child. So December 29th, uh, we formally began the process uh, with, an, with uh, an attorney and an agency, and 15 days later, we were matched with uh, a child. And we were looking at this, we're like, holy cow, this is coming fast, because the child is due the end of this month, March 29th. And so we began praying, and we asked people to join us, and we began raising money for this adoption. And within 15 days, uh, God blew us away, and frankly, a, a lot of you were a part of that. We're so thankful for that. And over $40,000 raised toward to cover uh, the total cost of the adoption was covered. We were just blown away. Uh, we began walking through, and there were just a number of things, just crazy little things that in the process that all just lined up very perfectly. Things that we couldn't make happen that really God orchestrated, and we were just like, man, can you believe this? One of those being, so last week, uh, I wasn't gone for the adoption, I was gone for class. So I'm working on a PhD, and so Jake was scheduled to preach last Sunday. But one thing we were praying, knowing in March, is like, I cannot, I cannot miss these days of class. They're required without losing credit for the class. So we were praying that the child wouldn't arrive while I was supposed to be in class. 
And so Friday morning, we got a text. He's on his way, which was remarkable because, I mean, it was exactly what we were praying for. I mean, I'm finishing class at noon. We hit the road, boom, and we drive to Ohio. We get into Ohio about 9 o'clock, and then we spend uh, the next 48 hours, uh, me playing single father in a hospital room with children, or it's in a hotel room, and then Liz spending those days at the hospital. Meeting a child, changing diaper, feeding, spending time with mom, that kind of thing. I briefly did get to meet uh, both mom and son because uh, COVID just made it to where, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't all go in. It was just one of those things. And there were a number of things in that process that we were just like, man, this is remarkable. And so honestly, I, I was looking at this. So I plan sermon series something like six months out. So sometimes people are like, you know, you planned that sermon around me this morning. I'm like, no, I didn't actually. This was planned a long time ago. And the same thing is true of this. Like this Galatians series was planned really to clarify our understanding of the gospel. But part of the gospel is God's adoption of us through faith in Christ. And so I was like, how amazing is this? I mean, the first sermon I preach when I get back is going to be Galatians 4 verses 1 through 7 on adoption. Just kind of mind-blowing. And I was just thinking, man, how amazing is this? And as we spent time there, it was just one of those things that, you know, just... You can't believe how God has orchestrated all of this. Uh, but then in the end, um, after a couple of days, uh, mom changed her mind, and we don't have a child. And so you're looking at it, and you're thinking like, there is no doubt in our minds that providentially and circumstantially God led us to this point. As one of our children said, it feels like mom was going to have a baby, and we lost it. That's how it felt. I mean, after you meet and hold this child, it's just one of those, it's, it's real, it's present, it's not imaginary. And so there's, of course, a part of me, of us, that has to say, like, God, what are you doing? Like, there are things that so clearly, providentially, you orchestrated, and here we are thinking we might walk in and like, oh, how cool is this? And it's like, you're empty-handed. And so, as I studied and meditated on this text, I had to ask, what then are we to learn? And so we have kind of twofold things we're going to do here this morning. And the first is the most important, and that's just walk clearly through God's Word and what He has to say. But at the end, I want to take a minute and just personally think through, if this is true and it is, what does it mean for us. So as we walk through this text, I want to see first who we were before Christ came in verses 1 through 3. So these three verses use a series of words that paint a picture of our life before Christ. Heir, child, slave, owner. Now each of these words has a strong meaning on its own. So it's remarkable that Paul strings them all together in one grand, glorious picture. Slave, owner, they're not the same thing. Yet Paul tells us this is the same person. So who are we apart from Christ? Paul says we are underage children or heirs. You may be familiar at least with the idea of uh, something like a Jewish bar mitzvah, a formal entrance into adulthood. Jewish, Greek, and Roman cultures all had this kind of ceremony. So an heir is someone who will inherit but is currently underage. 
all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities of adulthood are coming, but the child isn't there yet. So to be a child is to be like a slave. Now, I know what you kids are saying. Exactly. This is my, what I've been saying all along. I have no rights. But look at the text here, verse 1. He's no different from a slave. Verse 3, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The underage heir has rights similar to a slave. His will, his choices don't really matter. They're not his own. He's obligated to obey his master. Now, if you are a wise, discerning person like me, you know that the greatest food in the world is cookies and milk. Now, imagine with me this morning that we were going grocery shopping. I'll be dad, and I'll take my little guy along with me. In fact, I can remember uh, after COVID the first time, so for, for a long time we did kind of the pickup or I'd go out myself, and I can remember the first time taking Joe's to the grocery store, and I mean, he had eyes as big as saucers. Dad, can we have that, and that, and that, and that, and that, everything he saw, and I was like, dude, if you keep asking, you can't come again, and so then he stopped asking, he said, Dad, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. So we're walking through, we come to the best aisle in the store, the aisle that has more cookies than you could imagine, that you could take home and consume. Little guy decides he wants to fill the entire cart with Oreos. Now when you're four years old, this is a wise choice, because you get home, what are you going to want? Not the fruits and vegetables, the Oreos. Now me being a parent, I could walk through and I could take them all off the shelf, and assuming I have enough money to purchase all these, I could fill the entire cart with Oreos and take them home. And there's no one there who can tell me I can't. But little man wants to fill the cart with Oreos, and dad says, nah, we're not buying that many Oreos. Because dad has all the rights and privileges, and little man has none. And that's the picture that Paul gives us here. So the heir has rights similar to a slave. He walks through, he can like it, but he can't buy it. So on the one hand, an heir is like a slave, but on the other hand, he's very different. And the difference between a slave and an underage child isn't their present, it is their future. The heir is a future owner. Now we see this in the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. So in Luke 15, the the prodigal, rebellious son demands an inheritance from his father because he's saying, Dad, I have rights, but I am not experiencing them, and he demands them now. Verse 2 tells us that the heir is under guardians and managers. Now these are caretakers appointed by the father for the good of the child. In other words, they're kind of, uh, they're, they're stupid meters. They're to keep you from doing something stupid while you're underage. Well, how long does this period of slave-like existence last? Verse 2, until the date set by his father. In other words, the point is, who chooses when the child inherits? Father. It doesn't matter how badly the child wants, how much the son wants, he has no choice in the matter. Now, 
We know from historical documents that in Roman culture, the generally accepted age of adulthood is 14. But we also know legally it can be randomly set by a parent at any time. There are times where the child wouldn't officially become an adult until age 20. So an underage heir is someone who will own everything, but has nothing. No rights. Well, you can see a parallel, can't you? The father is sovereign. Chooses when the son will inherit. And our text says, God, when the fullness of time had come, sent his son, born of woman, born under the law. This happens for us individually as well. Why is it that the gospel is preached time after time after time? And yet one day, have you ever had this experience? You've heard someone say, God was speaking to me. Because the father said, the time has come. Now, our minds immediately jump to ourselves, and that is one level of what's going on here. Who we are before Christ and who we are in Christ. But Paul is making a bigger argument as well. He's, in argue, he's arguing from redemptive history, not from individual experience. So if you track back a few verses to Galatians 3, verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. So now he's taking that kind of thinking, and he's saying there's a guardian for these underage children. The law was the overseer of God's house until the true son comes. So really what Paul is saying, the underage child is the Old Testament saint. It's someone who existed before Jesus comes. The guardian is the law, and the father, of course, is God. Apart from Christ, we, he says, were enslaved to the elementary principles of these worlds. These elementary principles are the building blocks, kind of the, the letters, the basic ABCs. Romans 8.38 tells us also they are powers. 1 Corinthians 2 calls these the rulers of this age. Galatians 4 verse 8 expands on this idea of bondage. When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature that are not God's. You see, apart from Christ, we have no hope, no ability to free ourselves from bondage. The power of our opponent is too great. The spiritual powers in this world are empowered by beings far more powerful than you and I are. We cannot defeat them on our own. We need help. So to stick with our child metaphor for a minute, imagine with me that after church, you walk out and you see my four-year-old little guy, almost five, he's standing there, and there's a 12-year-old child picking on this five-year-old. You see this, you know it's not right, but the five-year-old has no hope against this 12-year-old. Because the 12-year-old is significantly more powerful than the small child. But then dad walks into the room. And dad says, stop picking on my son. You see, for us, we're battling these spiritual forces like little kids. Powerless to defeat them. But in the care of our father... Suddenly, all the power of the gospel is ours. But apart from Christ, we are enslaved. We cannot defeat these powers, but in Christ, we are free. So we've seen who we are before Christ, but what is it that changes everything? What does God do? Galatians 4 verse 4 sits at the fulcrum of history. God at his appointed time, 
in his appointed way, when the fullness of time had come, sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. When Christ comes, everything changes. Do the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus matter? God's children who receive him by faith are transformed from slaves into fully grown heirs of Christ. So God sends two gifts. Verses 4 and 6 highlight these gifts. In verse 4, God sent his son. Verse 6, God sent the spirit. This passage is one of the most beautifully Trinitarian passages in all the Bible. We see how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit work together in redemption. So we see God's objective work in salvation, but also his amazing relational and subjective work in making us his children. First, God sends his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, the creator, the king of the universe, is truly, fully human. Born of the spirit, born of his virgin mother, Mary. He grew from embryo to infant. Passed through a birth canal. Perhaps Joseph, the carpenter, even cut the umbilical cord. And as Jesus entered the world a human being, he willingly subjected himself to all the limitations of humanity including being born under the law. Who gave the law? Jesus is the divine lawgiver. Yet he willingly places himself now under the restrictions of the law. Yet unlike us, he perfectly obeys it. Never once disobeying mom or dad. Always perfectly loving God with his whole being. Always loving neighbor sacrificially. There was never a moment when Jesus dropped the ball. He's perfect in all the ways that we can't be. God also sent the Spirit, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul is highlighting the role of the Spirit in adoption. You see, the subjective work of the Spirit within us, something we sense, something we feel, connects us to God in a way that's impossible apart from the Spirit before Christ came. Is our Christian faith subjective or objective? Well, the answer is very clearly yes. Because there are aspects of the gospel in which God objectively declares us righteous as Jesus is righteous in justification. This is an objective truth. It cannot change. God declares it, and yet there are other aspects of salvation that are very subjective in terms of how we experience them. They come to us in a personal, relational way. You might say that there are ways in which God works through our feelings, our affections, in our hearts. So if your life is governed by your feelings, you can live in danger of being too easily swayed or being led astray. When you feel loved, you're loved. When you don't feel loved, you're not loved. You might even base your relationship with God based on what you had to eat that day and how you feel about it. But if you have no feelings in your relationship with God, if you view it only objectively and legally, then you're ignoring the blessing of what it means to be God's child. 
Uh, let's think about it this way for a minute. Now I have here uh, a wedding ring. Not just any wedding ring, it's my wedding ring. Belonged to my father before me. My mom, after my father passed, passed it to me, and now it's mine. But it, it's not just any ring, it signifies something. So imagine that we're walking through life, and you ask me if I love my wife. And I said, well, yeah, I'm married. I mean, this tells you all you need to know. I signed the marriage certificate. There's a, a legal transaction that's taking place, so of course I love my wife. Well, imagine that you, as you know, a very wise, intuitive husband, every time your wife wondered if you loved her, you held up your wedding ring. Honey, come on. It's signed and sealed. You know I love you. No worries. That's not how it works. Right? If every time someone in that relationship needs to feel assured, loved, embraced, if every time you point to the legal document, we signed the marriage certificate, and so did the minister, it's done, you're missing the point of what it means to have a relationship. Now, you need that legal declaration. You need that symbol. You need that document signed. You, I mean, this matters. But if this is the fullness of wedded bliss, don't do it. It's so much more than this. It's waking up. It's sharing life together. It's sharing life's joys and celebrating together. It's weeping and grieving together. It's conflict it's harmony. There's so much more than some legal transaction. And brothers and sisters, if all that salvation is to us is something objective sitting out there in the court of God's law where God says righteous, not guilty, we are missing what it means to be God's child. God wants a relationship with you. God intends and does relate to you as a father relates to his son. And furthermore, Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ is our bridegroom and we are his bride. If the fullest understanding we have of the gospel is some words on a page or something written in some book of life, but it's never here, we are missing what it means to be God's child. It is a legal declaration, but it is so much more than that. God is our Father, and He sends His Spirit to witness to us that though the legal transaction matters, He exists in a warm, vibrant, familial, loving relationship with us. So God sends the Son and sends the Spirit for two purposes. Verse 5 tells us two reasons Christ came. The same Greek word introduces both phrases in verse 5. We are saved from something and for something. He tells us we are redeemed from the law. Verse 5, he came so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Remember verse 4? Christ himself was born under the law. His humble position, placing himself under the law, allows him to redeem those who are in the same position. Christ came to buy us back from the slave market of sin, Romans 6 teaches. That before Christ came, we were slaves to sin. 
His blood is the purchase price of our sin. All who turn in faith to Christ have their sins forgiven and are brought from death to life. Jesus came to redeem us when we were under condemnation. The law condemns us guilty. Christ sets us free. The law can condemn us and point us to Jesus, but it can't save us. But Christ doesn't just save us from the law. He also saves us for adoption. Verse 5, he redeemed us so that we might receive adoption as sons. Those who become God's people by grace through faith also become sons of God through adoption. And this adoption fundamentally changes our relationship with God. Romans 5, 10 teaches us that before Christ comes, we relate to God as enemies of God under the wrath, judgment, and condemnation of God. But if we're in Christ, we don't receive God's judgment. As one pastor put it, God will never forsake his son. Since I am united to Christ, God will never forsake me because I am now his son. God adopts us into his family. Now, Paul doesn't tell us he does this, but he switches metaphors right in the middle of this paragraph, which can be a little bit confusing, because at one level, he's talking about uh, an underage child becoming an adult. Well, now he switches metaphors, and he begins to talk about adoption, which is someone who's not in the family becoming a part of that family. Someone who has none of the rights associated with being in that family. This person with no rights, not born into the family, is now given great rights and status associated with being in the good grace of the father. So God's intervention moves us from who we were apart from Christ to who we are in Christ. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Imagine with me it's Tuesday afternoon. You stop by the church, maybe by the office to pick up something and you look out on our playground out back you see a little blonde-headed dude running around you're like hey that looks like joe's and as you're watching him you see liz over in the corner and she's talking to some mom over here and um joe's is very happily playing but then you see a car roll up to the playground this car has tinted windows you can't see who's in the car you can see it shaking got a pretty good base and then you see the window roll down. You can't quite see what's happening, but you see an arm poke out and a piece of candy stick out the window. And Jose runs out the playground toward this car. And you panic. You're like, what is going on here? You see the car door open and Jose hop in the door of the car. You run up to the car, ready to confront this person, only to see that it's me driving the car. What changed in this story? Everything about this story changes based upon your perceived relationship between who's in that car and that child. See, if you run up to that car and there's a stranger sitting there, you know this is not right. But your view of the situation transforms when you realize that's his dad. And in the same way, Adoption changes our view of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Rather than slaves, we are now sons, daughters, heirs. 
You see, outside of Christ, you don't have rights. You don't have claims upon God's loyalty. No familial father love from God. You have no security. No comfort in your relationship with God. You can't call God Father, but in Christ that all changes. God now calls us son, daughter, men, women, children, all ethnicities who follow Christ, receive the full rights of sonship and are co-heirs with Christ. Now Paul uses a key term in verse 6. Jesus, in the garden, was crying to his father. And he cried out, Abba, Father, before he went to the cross. Jews, though, don't use this term to refer to God. It's considered disrespectful. A common term for dads, but not a term for that dad. Jesus, though, uses this title for God. And those who are in Christ have the right to call God their dad in a way that no one before did. Christ changes everything about the way we relate to God. Galatians 4 says here that the Spirit within us calls God our Abba, Father. And Romans 8 adds, as the Spirit does this, we have the right to call God our Dad, our Abba, our Father. The term formerly eternally reserved for the Son of God is now freely shared with all the sons and daughters of God. God is now our Father. Has what Christ has done changed the way you think about our God? Sons and daughters come when their father calls. Sons and daughters obey dad when he speaks. Sons and daughters run to dad for help. What do our lives teach others about our relationship with our dad? What does your life tell others about your relationship with this dad? What does your life tell you about your relationship with this dad? If you haven't rested on Christ and Christ alone for salvation, you cannot know God as your dad. If you haven't leaned on Christ this way, if you haven't experienced the love of God this way, would you turn from your sin? Would you run to the arms of your heavenly Father and trust Christ today? Kids, teens, is your relationship with your heavenly or your, your earthly parents one that you would gladly say represents your relationship with your heavenly father? Does being a son or daughter of God change the way your son or daughter to your parents? What is it that Ephesians 6.1 says? Children, obey your parents. Absolutely, no. In the Lord. You see, being in Christ changes the way we relate to our Heavenly Father and also the way we relate to our earthly mom and dad. What about us? I mean, how would it change the way we pray? If we understood what it was to go to God as 
dad. I mean, God is our Lord and King, high above us. But he's kind, loving, daddy to his children. A part of what we experienced the last couple of weeks is uh, we spent time living out of suitcases and eating at restaurants. And you can get restauranted out. And I remember one night I was looking on the counter there in a hotel. There was a cup, a little drink from Chick-fil-A with, with that much in the bottom of it. Kids are in bed. I'm like, no one is drinking that. I threw it away. Next morning, someone comes to me with a little bit of a lip. Dad, did you throw away my tea? I, I knew I'd been had. Well, why does my heart hurt in that moment? Because that's such a valuable mix of backwash and tea. No, because my heart as a father longs to make my child happy. Longs for my child to feel secure and cherished in my love. I don't want to do things that undermine his security, undermine his sense of love. We don't go to a distant God and ask him for bread and he gives us a stone. We don't go to God and ask him for a fish and he gives us a serpent. How much more? If your earthly father delights in doing good things for you, how much more does your heavenly father delight in giving you good gifts? We are going to the king who happens to be our dad. How would this transform the way we pray? How would this transform whether we pray? If we knew we were coming to the king of the universe who has the power to grant any petition, who is our heavenly father, who has the will, the good pleasure, and the love to hear the plea of his child. Or perhaps you're here this morning, you have no earthly dad. Or perhaps your earthly dad is an abusive or absent father. But to be in Christ is to have the best father. You can run to the arms of your heavenly dad. Mom and dad, how are we doing at modeling the love of this father to our children? Do we show our children a secure, patient, kind, gentle, humble love? Like the love of our father. But no matter what experience we have in this family relationship here on earth, there's no way of getting around that the best relationship will have disappointment. The closest relationship will have brokenness. We await a coming day when we meet that dad, our heavenly father. 1 Peter 1.4 tells us that we look forward to an imperishable, incorruptible inheritance that's reserved waiting for us. So are we sons and daughters of God today? Yes. But is this as good as that gets Absolutely not. We have received adoption as sons, but we await the full adoption. The full inheritance is still coming. The best things we taste in life are but a dim picture of that day. 
the full redemption of our bodies, rescue out of this fallen, broken world. As we wrap this up, I want to close with some very specific implications for us as Christians. As I already shared, I didn't plan for any of this to coincide the way that it has. I had no idea that I would be driving north to adopt a son the week I was going to preach this passage. As I drove north to Ohio last week, I was aware of that and couldn't help but think what a beautiful thing it is that God orchestrated all of this. Because this passage, Galatians 4, along with Romans 8, was so formative in our thinking about adoption. Adoption isn't just an aspect of the gospel, it's a way we can display the gospel in our lives. It should be something that God's children are committed to. Not all have to do it, but it's something that God's people should care about. I mean, to show God's love to someone else, someone not ours by birth, not born into our family, someone who may not be anything like us, welcome that person as a son or daughter, as a brother and sister. I mean, what better picture of God's love for us? So I thought, how amazing that God will orchestrate this this way. But that meditation went from joy to heartbreak. We trust God's care for that child. We're not that father. We're not the heavenly father. We trust that he'll give his mom what she needs to care for him. And we trust ourselves to the care of our perfect good father. But it's hard to tell you how sad this has been. I mean, for your child to say, it feels like mommy had a baby and it died. I mean, that, that is, it's, I don't know that it's quite like that, but it feels in many ways like a, a death of someone you love. It's an unbelievable thing to meet a child you think is going to be yours and then see God intervene in a different way. So part of this is we're right in the middle of this, and so there's no way to process and know fully what God is doing. There's just no way to know that. But one thing I do know is that it's very evident that God didn't intend for me to come back holding a son and triumphantly say, look what God did. That was not his will. He did, though, intend for me to come back and say with sorrow, yet joy, look what God did. Empty-handed. I mean, there's so many circumstances that came together. One thing we couldn't doubt is that it was God's will for us to be sitting there in a hotel room with nothing. Like, God put us there, but no child there. And this is small parenting pain to the pain that many here have experienced going through the process of praying for a child seeing God answer that prayer only to lose that child to go through all the heartache potentially all the medical bills and have nothing to show for it at the end of it and I was thinking, God, how? How could this be good? 
How could this be your will? But the remarkable thing about our father is he knows parenting pain. Our good father gave his son. And not only did he send his eternal son, one he knew far better, far longer, far more intimately than we could ever imagine, he actually also knows as the best adoptive father, what it is to set his affection on an adopted son or daughter only to have that son or daughter break his heart. To have the cherished love in that relational bond broken. You see, our sin as God's children doesn't change the legal status. But it does devastate the joy and intimacy in our relationship with our Father. And we know our Father's heart. What pains a parent more than seeing a child wander in ways that are harming that child? Also harming the relationship. So, the joys of parenting are sometimes pains. And so as you think about adoption, I think one temptation could have been to make this a passage about an earthly father. But God's point in including this in Scripture was that we would soak our souls in the love of our heavenly father. Think of what it means for God to take someone like you. I don't mean you're not a nice person, friendly. But think about the number of times we have broken the heart of our Heavenly Father. Not removed ourselves from the love of Christ. That's not what I'm saying. but we walk in ways that God's children should never walk. We meditate and chew on things that people who really understood the love of the Father would never meditate and chew on. And yet God sets his affection on us in ways that are beyond our comprehension. And so far beyond our deserving. It's remarkable that God would look at a sinner like me and say, beloved son. Or that God would take a sinner like you and say, beloved daughter. So the next time you see or feel a child laying her head on your shoulder, or cuddling into dad's safe embrace. Remember the love of our heavenly father who gave his one son so that adopted children could enter into life and love and security and eternal joy 
This, brothers and sisters, is grace. This is love. What joy that we have a Father who loves us like this. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's run to our Father.